This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, January the 19th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. almost got me today but I was too quick coming up on the show today David Lepofsky from the AODA Alliance remembers former Lieutenant Governor David Onley and his contribution to the disability rights movement certified financial planner Ryan Chin explores what goes into developing market confidence for investors in times of economic uncertainty and Sean Priest will tell you all about the biped that and so much more coming your way over the course of the next two hours. Thank you for making time to hang out today. Let's begin with the top story of the day, and it's following up on some news that I shared with you yesterday. Defense Minister Anita Anand has wrapped up a trip to Ukraine's capital. Anand laid out the military support that Canada is offering Ukraine. I want all Canadians to know that as Minister Resnikov told me today, Ukraine is highly grateful for Canada's uh, defense contributions to Ukraine, including heavy artillery, a NASAMS air defense system, the armored vehicles that I announced today as well. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie noted the significance of supporting Ukraine's war efforts. Because at the end of the day, what Ukrainians are doing on the battlefield right now is defending the international rules-based order, which, is, which has kept us safe since the Second World War. And we have every interest in supporting their fight for freedom. The defense minister is scheduled to attend a U.S.-led meeting in Germany on Friday, where the issue of sending tanks to Ukraine is at the top of the agenda. Coming back to Canadian politics, the federal NDP is holding a caucus meeting ahead of the next session in Parliament. Leader Jagmeet Singh feels that workers are being left out of the economic conversation. And the Liberals are using the Bank of Canada to blame people's wages for inflation. Wages aren't even keeping up with inflation. People are doing everything right, but still falling behind. I uh, thought I was watching Game of Thrones there for a second during uh, Jagmeet Singh's press conference. Shame. Shame. Singh also took some time to address how premiers are handling the healthcare system. While Daniel Smith and Doug Ford and Heather Stephenson launch a mission to privatize public universal Canadian healthcare, Justin Trudeau does nothing. And Pierre Poliev cheers them on. The House of Commons gets back to business on January the 30th. Here's a neat story for you. The influx of new airlines in Canada is leading to a pilot shortage. Lori Paris explains. Flair, Lynx, and other upstart airlines offer cheap fares and strip-down service levels. But so many new routes have been launched in the past couple of years that experts say it's putting a strain on the country's already limited pilot supply. Other factors contributing to the shortage include an aging workforce, pandemic-related layoffs and retirements, and the rising cost of pilot training. A 2018 report by the Canadian Council for Aviation and Aerospace said some smaller carriers are already lowering their hiring criteria for pilots just to maintain their operations. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. And then a few climate change stories for you. U.S. President Joe Biden is visiting parts of California impacted by severe storms. Jennifer King looks ahead. Biden, accompanied by FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell, Governor Gavin Newsom and other officials, is set to survey storm-ravaged areas via helicopter on a trip between Santa Clara and Santa Cruz counties. He'll meet with residents in Capitola, a town next to Santa Cruz that's been hit by mudslides, river flooding and high surf. Our heart is with all of the families, all the families in the communities that are hurting. In the early evening, he'll deliver remarks from a seaside state park in Aftos. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the president will reaffirm his commitment to supporting the people of California. Storms have caused severe floods and landslides. Jennifer King, Washington. And in a related climate story, a study published in the journal Nature shows Greenland is, warm, is the warmest it's been in more than 1,000 years. Ben Thomas shares some of the research. 
The conclusion comes from ice cores drilled in 2011, which show a sharp spike in temperatures since 1995, 2.7 degrees hotter than Greenland's 20th century average. Scientists say Greenland's warming may have been masked by local weather variability, but it's now become too big to be hidden. The study's lead author calls the jump the clear signature of global warming. And the new data is bad news because Greenland's ice sheet is melting. In 2012, the year after the core was taken, saw a record melt. And the island's ice loss has been on high ever since. I'm Ben Thomas. And let's get to one more story about the economy, this one looking abroad, as France is bracing for a major labour strike. Inez de la Couture has the story. A French union threatening to cut off electricity to lawmakers and billionaires ahead of a nationwide strike scheduled on Thursday meant to protest the government's plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Workers in the transportation, education and energy sectors are all expected to participate in the strike. Flights and most train trips are expected to be cancelled, while major protest marches will be held in Paris and other major cities. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, Paris. That's your look at the news. How about we talk about the Daily Poll? On Wednesday, you were asked at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, what is your favorite outdoor winter activity? 40% of you said skating, 20% of you said skiing, 0% of you said snowshoeing, and 40% of you said sledding. We also had Cynthia writing in, ice fishing good one. Terry writes in, staying indoors, but seriously, ice skating, even though I don't anymore. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. There's a lot of nostalgia popping up. You surely heard the conversation yesterday about Zellers making a comeback across the country, and there was news coverage aplenty. It got me thinking. How much does nostalgia influence how you spend your money? A lot, a little, or not at all? You can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. While you're pondering how to vote, let's bring in Alex Smythe for his thoughts on this one. Alex, how much does nostalgia impact you taking money out of your wallet? I would probably side with a little. Uh, It's definitely not a lot, and... I, I'm sure, you know, when I actually like break down uh, what I would, what really attracts me to to spend money on something, yeah, there's probably like a little, maybe 5% would be, you know, how much nostalgia uh, influences me, but it's really specific for the type of item that I'm looking to to buy, really, because the only thing that I really think of when it comes to nostalgia, like, hey, first off, I could not uh, care less about Zellers coming back. I may be one in the minority. Like, I don't really remember it being the most fantastic store out there. And yet everyone's kind of ranting and raving about it. Yeah, it's one of these things I don't understand what the buzz is about. There's probably like four people in this world who like Zellers and they got involved in some comment section and then the mass media was like, oh, we got to do a bunch of Zellers stories. Hudson based on a press release. Time to do Zellers talk. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, the only like aspect where I would think of that nostalgia plays role is for me when it comes to either old movies or old games. Like that's really a staple of my childhood and something that I always like to recapture. So you know what I've I've done um, a while ago was I I got this like vintage uh, uh, game system that lets me play all the old games from my my childhood and like that that is where I would spend my money because of the nostalgia, but. When you look at other things like clothes or or other like items or things around the house, no, I, I, nostalgia really doesn't play a role. How does it function in today's society and in, in my environment in a modern setting? That's really what sets uh, uh, my criteria for buying something. What yeah, there's you, you, there's something to that, Alex. That perhaps you are trying to recapture a feeling. And there's a thing that can help you do that, whether that's an old video game. You and I spent a little time talking off the air in the fall when I spent about $13 to buy a a, a reskinned version of Warcraft 2. 
and I realized, oh my gosh, this makes me feel like I'm 13 years old again. This is incredible. What I wouldn't give to be 13 and get these 25 years back and go all over again. So there's something, there's something about that where as much as I say that I will fight and push against the temptations of nostalgia, the fact is everyone will have their own nostalgia in a way that it impacts them. So I'm also on your side here a little, but I don't understand the nostalgia around a retailer. I understand the nostalgia around a thing, around a game, around a song. I mean, I'm one of these people who spent my life savings to buy a Blink-182 ticket for uh, later this year when they come to Toronto. And that's, again, me trying to capture how I felt in high school or early college because that was a band that had some meaning to me then. So I'm chasing that feeling. But I, I just don't see how walking into a retail store is going to give that to me. Maybe a restaurant. Maybe if you brought back uh, the old, uh, the old uh, uh, wings and things on uh, Sherbrooke in Montreal, that might give me a, a sense of nostalgia. But I don't think you're going to do it with a store. Alex, thank you for your thoughts on this one. We'll talk to you a couple times as the show moves along today. In the meantime, you can vote on the poll on social media at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's Inc. with a C not with a K, or at Accessible Media on Twitter. And don't forget, if social media is not your bag, you can always send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can give a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex for the National Weather Updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's snow mixed with rain this morning, and then it will be cloudy in the afternoon. Up to two centimeters is set to fall, and uh, the high is two degrees, and a winter storm watch is in place for St. John's. To Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow this morning. The high there is also two degrees. In Montreal, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and the high is also 2 degrees. To Ottawa, Ontario, it is partially cloudy, becoming more cloudy as this morning rolls on. The high is minus 3, and feeling like minus 9, there is a weather advisory for heavy snow falling this evening and into tomorrow. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with snow or ice this morning, then turning to a 60% chance of rain in the afternoon. Freezing rain is in parts of the city, especially on the northern end. There's also wind gusts of 60 kilometers per hour. The high is three degrees and a freezing rain warning is in effect for the area. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow and the high is minus five. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a chance of light snow, minus six is the high, and there's a wind chill that makes it feel like minus 14. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's similar, cloudy with a chance of light snow or possibly freezing rain. Minus four is the high, and it's minus 12 with that wind chill. In Calgary, Alberta, it's cloudy this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon. The high is four degrees, feeling a bit cooler at minus seven. In Edmonton, Alberta, similar conditions. It's cloudy, clearing up this morning. Zero is the high, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 13. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, there's light snow this morning and then possibly late in the afternoon, but there is a transitioning point where it's gonna be turning into a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus six, but feeling like minus 21 with the wind chill. In Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds, increasing with cloud cover as the day goes on, and the high is five degrees. And then finally, in Victoria, BC, it's sunny with clouds and possible rain rolling in as the day goes on. The high is 7 degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we continue to reflect and remember the life of former Lieutenant Governor David Onley. We'll talk about his contributions to the disability rights movement with David Lepofsky from the AODA Alliance. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Throughout the week, we've been remembering, celebrating the life of former Ontario Lieutenant Governor and disability advocate David Onley. To offer his thoughts on Mr. Onley is another well-known disability advocate, David Lepofsky, the chair of the AODA Alliance. Uh, Mr. Lepofsky, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. We're grateful. Good to talk to you, but call me David, please. Oh, sorry. Uh, David, what are your memories of David Onley? Uh, David Onley was a character, a warm guy, a nice guy, a charismatic guy, and uh, a guy who saw the barriers we faced. And in his final report delivered four years ago this month to the Ontario government, uh, culminating his independent review of the implementation of the Disabilities Act. He he took a lifetime of experience with disability barriers and uh, a public role, brought it all together in a report that, frankly, was blistering. And it was, uh, I think, the truest David Onley uh, when he told the Ontario government that progress on accessibility in Ontario has been proceeding at his words, a glacial pace, and that Ontario remains a province full of soul-crushing barriers. Uh, these are very blunt terms, but they are completely accurate terms. Uh, and uh, when I reflect back on him, I, I reflect back uh, not just on bringing public attention to the barriers we face, excuse me, but also giving the government of Ontario four years ago a constructive uh, roadmap uh, on how to get Ontario to the legally obligatory goal of full accessibility by 2025. Um, unfortunately, it is uh, work that remains unfinished after we've lost David because uh, the government of Ontario has never implemented his report or announced a, a serious plan to do so, mm. uh, which uh, hurts everyone, I believe. David, what does it say about David Onley as a, as a person, that he was able to be such a fierce advocate, but still express such warmth and kindness and be solutions focused, that he could experience these barriers and face them with fierce advocacy that was wrapped in kindness. What does that say about who he was as a person? Well, he was a decent guy, but also he was uh, a determined guy. Uh, and I think that's, I, I, I have to describe how down to earth a person he is. Um, I had the privilege of being invited to his swearing in as the lieutenant governor, as the Queen's representative, which is all full of pomp and circumstance and royal prerogative and all that stuff. It was lovely. And it was about a week later, I happened to be at Queen's Park for a news conference or something. And at Queen's Park in Toronto, at the legislature, uh, there are two places you can eat. There's a fancy dining room. Uh, with, you know, really nice food and really expensive food and so on. And then down the hall, uh, there's a cafeteria where you line up for stale tuna sandwiches in those little wrappers. Well, I was in the lineup for the stale tuna sandwiches. And right behind me was David Onley. And I, I, when I knew he was there, I said, hey, David, like, you're the Queen's representative. Can't can't you do better than this? And But that was David. I mean, he just... Uh, let me just have my tuna sandwich and let me get back to work. <laughs> he was he was someone who certainly uh, was tireless in the work that he did, and it, it speaks it, it speaks to who he was that he was certainly a, a man a man of the people. When you think about that role that he had as the first person with a disability to be appointed to the position of lieutenant governor of Ontario, what do you think it was about him in that role that helped advance the disability rights movements? Well, the the thing was when he got appointed, and, and I somebody in the media called me and said, "What does this signify?" I said, "Wherever they invite him to go, it to give a speech, it better be accessible. And if it isn't beforehand, they better make it accessible by the time he gets there." And if you think about it, it would be pretty embarrassing to have a, a person using a mobility device show up to give a talk as lieutenant governor, highlighting accessibility and can't get in. Um, so there we, uh, it was, uh, it was implicit in the kind of role he had that it was, that, that it had to make a difference. And the other thing is every Lieutenant Governor, uh, tends to, as I gather, pick some nonpartisan social issue as the cause they're going to speak to. Uh, and he picked accessibility and it's the first time, uh, 
um, someone had in this role. And, and that was really important because obviously he embodied the need for it. But there was also a limit to what he could do in that role because he couldn't be controversial. Uh, he couldn't call out the government and say, you're doing a lousy job. At least he couldn't say it publicly. Um, and uh, he and I had any number of meetings in his uh, offices at Queen's Park. They're huge. They're usually there for receptions. And it was like him and me in this big empty room. <laughs> <laughs> you got to figure. And we caught each other up on, on what, we're, what we saw going on and what needed to be done. Uh, and uh, he he kind of put it that we were like cops working opposite ends of the same street. <laughs> uh, that was his turn of phrase, which I thought was kind of a clever way of putting it. But it was also the way we worked when he was in the media and I was doing my community advocacy. Um, we were our own separate individuals doing our own thing, but committed to a common goal, contributing as, as best we can. But this, as I said, come, all comes together uh, in uh, t 2019 when he rendered his final report of his uh, review of the Disabilities Act. Just so people understand, the Disabilities Act was passed in 2005, calling, uh, requiring Ontario to become accessible by 2025, that's 20-year uh, timeline. And uh, it had a number of tools to make sure we got there, uh, or in an effort to make sure we got there. One of them was every three or four years, the government had to appoint an independent review to take our temperature, see how we're doing. David did the last of the three independent reviews that have taken place. Uh, there's a fourth going on now. Uh, but he and he went out, consulted with people with disabilities, uh, took our uh, collective temperature, uh, and gave the government the news. And it was uh, the bluntest of any of the three reports, all the three independent reviews done by three different people were excellent. But he said, like, they've had a lot of time and we're not making the kind of progress we need. And he gave a roadmap for what needs to be fixed. But as I said below or before, uh, the frustration for him and for all of us was that the uh, provincial government um, has not implemented his report. They've held a couple of events within a few months after his report to make it look like they were implementing something. Mm. But we we mm. analyzed what they announced. Uh, and they were basically re-announcing things that have been going on for months, years, and in some cases, decades. It was not a roadmap for new action. As you think about his legacy, I, I'm sure that so much of it has to do with the advocacy and so much, so much of the work that he did on the AODA in terms of those independent reviews. But what do you believe his legacy is? Well, I think we're experiencing it right now. Um, usually, if someone, if a lieutenant governor passes away, there's a, a news clipping, and some polit you know, a premier will make a statement, and they'll say, "Thank you for your service." And it, it it's that's it. Um, this has been getting, I believe, David's passing has been getting far more coverage mm -hmm. than any other loss of a lieutenant governor that I've seen in my lifetime. And but not only that, but the content of the coverage. It started out with the quotes from you know the premier and the former premier uh, Kathleen Wynne, uh, and you know the current lieutenant governor and so on. Uh, you know the uh, the public figures who properly should and and said what ought to be said, um, but then the coverage expanded and it mm. has overwhelmingly been coverage of different people with disabilities who are advocating for accessibility, um, and that's been going on uh, for several days. You know, our conversation this morning is just the latest, mm -hmm. and I'm taping another interview in a half an hour with another news organization. Uh, uh, right after this, and and they're reaching out to a number of different voices in the disability community, and I think that is, and, and the message that recurs throughout that coverage is to honor David Onley's legacy, implement his report, mm. and uh, that that is a crescendoing message, which really shows how, frankly, David Onley is continuing the advocacy effort even after we've sadly lost David Onley from from uh, from our midst. 
David, that's so well put. I've observed that as well. Uh, on Monday morning, uh, someone who you know well and who's a regular contributor on the show, Thea Curdy, was on CBC Metro Morning talking about the work that David Onley did. It's it's just remarkable to see so many people sharing those reflections this week. Uh, our accessibility reporter, Megan Gilmore, came on the show yesterday and talked a little bit about some of the impact that he's had on her life. He was a really, really remarkable man. And David, thank you for making time for us this morning to reflect on his life and legacy. He's going to be dearly, dearly missed. Always good to talk to you, and thank you for giving uh, the attention that, that he deserves. Mm. That's David Lepofsky, the chair of the AODA Alliance, speaking to you from Toronto. Coming up next, certified financial planner Ryan Chin explores what goes into developing market confidence for investors in times of economic uncertainty. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. saw a bit of a slip yesterday, but still fared better than its American cousin Wall Street. Toronto's S&P TSX lost 81 points to settle at 20,376. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 614 points, down to 33,297. As for the Nasdaq, it also fell 138 points to 10,957. Overseas, Japan's Nikkei has taken a bit of a hit this morning, closing down 386 points at 26,405. Meanwhile, the Hang Seng in Hong Kong losing just 27 points, closing at 21,633. Experts say the low-cost airline model in Canada is exasperating an already existing pilot shortage, and Post Media has sold the Calgary Herald building for $17.25 million to U-Haul. And finally, our loonie is trading overseas this morning at 74.08 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The economy can be a complicated cauldron. You can throw in all kinds of ingredients when you talk about it. A dash of inflation, a pinch of job numbers, a zest of the housing market, a heaping pile of politics. Our friends south of the border are still trying to figure out whether they can fund their government. Not to mention pundits forecasting the possibility of a recession to be added to your list of ingredients. So what does that recipe mean for investors' confidence in the market? Does uncertainty trump strategy? Ryan Chin is a certified financial planner, and Ryan can offer some perspective on the evolving economic landscape. Hey, good morning, Ryan. How are you? Hey, good morning, Dave. I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> so, Ryan, I'd argue, based on data, that the economy is a little bit of a mixed bag at the moment. Strong job numbers. It seems like the stock market is stabilized a little bit. The real estate market hasn't dropped quite in the way some pundits thought it would. So there's some good indicators and there's some bad indicators, too. We are seeing some of that down downturning in the forecasting of a recession. What do you make of the description when I say it's a little complicated? Dave, I mean, definitely, it is complicated, and we all wish we had a crystal ball at this time of the uh, the year. Um, you know, as we kick off January and the start of a new uh, uh, cycle or a new year, as it were, you know, everyone likes to try to offer their predictions as to how the year is going to unfold. I mean, the pressures that you stated before in terms of, you know, cooling of the economy, we've got uh, job numbers. Now, I will say uh, the job numbers are starting to reflect uh, what um, they're, they're hoping to have. I mean, we're, we're hearing about a number of massive layoffs um, with some of the big uh, tech companies. Mm. So that is starting to move in the direction that uh, the central banks would like it to go, um, which which ultimately would help that sort of inflation pressure. Um, I, I, I don't want to get too ahead of my skis here, Dave, but to, to, to definitely uh, confirm your, your statement, it is it is there, there's a lot going on yeah it, it's one that that you can read a whole bunch of different economists and writing a bunch of different bunch of different newspapers or or, or 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 magazines and they're all they're not stumped by it but they're certainly curious it's it's been a curious couple of years since the pandemic started with some uh some dips and some rises maybe some of the dips haven't been as severe as people thought and maybe some of the rises have been quite significant but when you think about this term market 
confidence. How does the way that a pundit talks about the possibility of a recession impact the way people perceive the economy? There was some survey data released this week about how people were feeling about their own personal debt or about consumer confidence. But how does how does the way that people like you or I might talk about it impact the way people perceive the economy? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, Dave. But let me take one step back because you made a great comment. Since the... Um uh, since we've had this uh, global pandemic and the shutdown, the markets have experienced some things that they have never, ever seen in the history of investments. For example, um, you know, with, with the entire global world shutting down overnight, um, I think. It, it's, it was a true T21 time frame, leading to... Oh, Ryan, we're having a little, we're having a little technical internet hiccup on you. So just, just bear with us for a second, uh, Ryan, and hold that thought. Don't, don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. But hold, hold that thought for a second. Is maybe the, uh, the internet stabilizes there as you're reflecting a little bit on the way in which a moment that could have been deeply unstable didn't necessarily result in that stability. I don't know if we want to try to come back to Ryan here for, uh, no, we're not going to come back to Ryan just, just yet. You know what we should do, actually? Ryan mentioned, but you know what we should do, though? We should actually go over to tech trends for a moment here, guys, because uh, Ryan mentioned some of those tech layoffs that are occurring in the job market right now. One of those companies that's doing those layoffs is Microsoft. They're laying off a lot of people. So why don't we actually give this Mike Dubusky uh, tech trends report a quick listen, and then we'll come back to Ryan and talk. Uh, he can pick up on that thought about the economy through the pandemic. So let's have a listen to Mike Dubusky in tech trends. Microsoft cutting about 5% of its workforce. Investopedia's Caleb Silver. What it's really facing is a slowdown in overall IT shipments and a slowdown in PC shipments. And what does Microsoft do? It provides a lot of software for those PCs, but also a lot of consulting services. Amazon, Meta, and other big tech firms have announced similar layoffs in recent months. Silver says slower growth and rising interest rates are to blame. Those two forces are making it so that their profits are constrained going forward. So the way to improve profit growth is to cut some of the workforce and improve those margins. At the same time, Microsoft is still trying to buy video game company Activision Blizzard despite an FTC lawsuit, and it's reportedly eyeing an investment in artificial intelligence firm OpenAI. So you see a lot of acquisitions or pending acquisitions that don't necessarily employ a lot of people, but help them grow their businesses. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Coming back to uh, Ryan Chin. Ryan, Big Tech heard us talking about so those layoffs and they went right for your Wi-Fi connection as you were uh, sharing some thoughts there. So pick up on the thought you were sharing in regards to the way in which the pandemic may have influenced markets, but not in the way that people would have typically predicted. All right, I think, uh, I think the internet has officially decided that we don't get to talk to Ryan Chin today. That's okay. Let's uh, come back over to Alex Smythe here. Alex, I know that you're not exactly a budding economist, but I've got this theory about the way in which people talk about the market being something that influences the way people perceive it, right? If pundits keep coming on television day in, day out and saying, it's a disaster, the sky is falling, the housing market is falling apart, stocks are going down, it's cratering. You can almost talk people into this recession rather than like economic fundamentals impacting a recession. Again, I know you're not a certified financial planner like a Ryan Chin, but what do you make of sort of that that power of the pulpit that exists on places like mass media? Yeah, Dave, I, I think there is certainly something to that because you can expand that to any any uh, sector, it doesn't have to be even the financial sector, you know, it, when it comes to news, you consume what is presented and you assume that is an accurate and representative uh, picture of the state of the world around you, whether it is, you know, crime, whether it's politics, whether it is the financial markets, the housing markets, it kind of shapes your worldview, especially if you're consuming it from a one source or a couple of sources. And if you have 
multiple pundits are predicting, uh, you know, economic recessions or, or major uh, kind of pitfalls within the economy based on past experiences, based on indicators that, you know, didn't really uh, take place when there was a global pandemic going on and unprecedented spending and supports from the government, you can understand, okay, well, based on these other factors that like you take out the, the pandemic or COVID, this is what should happen. So that's what they're speaking to through that experience. But because this is such an unprecedented time that what they are predicting or what they are forecasting may not always be what ends up happening. As we saw uh, last week with the food price in indicators, uh, we, we saw the whole uh, predictions from last year of how high the food prices were supposed to rise about 5 to 7% end up being over 11 or yeah, 10%. Yeah. And so it's such a difficult time for anyone to really forecast how the markets are going to play out, how the financial systems are going to work. We saw people at the beginning of the pandemic too, especially these big tech companies, invest in people, hire tons of people. Yeah, and then eventually yeah. they, st they started clawing back and, and having to let people go. It's so true. You get you get a company like Peloton that went through like a hundreds of percent stock rise, hiring tons of people, expanding like crazy, and then all of a sudden gyms reopened again, and Peloton was like, "No, wait, <laughs> we might have overexpanded too quickly here." Alex, last week we talked about uh, the possibility of unretiring the Canada Savings Bonds, mm -hmm. and and I, I may have made this joke, so apologies if I'm repeating my material here, but I'm not trying to necessarily look too deeply inside your investment portfolio, but this is is that time of year when people are either topping up their RRSPs or maybe doing a little financial recalibration. Do you take some time in January or February to think about what's in your investment portfolio? I, for me, it's an ongoing conversation. I don't, I don't need a special month or a special day to do it. I'm almost looking, not every day would be a stretch, but I'm certainly calibrating every week or so. How often are you dipping into your RRSPs to have a peek? Uh, yeah, so I, I get my monthly statements on, on what my um, what my investments, what my savings are are like, how they're doing. And I, I always use that as a key indicator. Okay, maybe I should uh, look at uh, maybe moving some things around, talk to my financial advisor, figure out how I can better, um, you know, utilize the market to my, my advantage. And then I also throughout the year, a uh, couple different times, you see in the spring, in the summer, and in the fall, I look to add more money and more funds into uh into my saving portfolio i have a a monthly um amount that goes in but uh, to like a tfsa and mm -hmm, things like that but mm -hmm. then i also on top of that typically like to do two or three times a year added uh funds that you know i you save up a certain amount it's like okay i can i can put this into better use than just sitting in a, a bank account collecting mm -hmm, pennies mm -hmm. you know I, I can make a better sense of this so there's different types of uh, points where I'm I'm monitoring it once a month for my my just standard amount and then every three to four months I'm looking at okay how can I put a bit more investment and in? where should I be putting this money Alex thank you for helping us out here a little bit we have uh, fought with the technology we've run the hamsters through the wheels and we've gone old school and connected with Ryan Chin certified financial planner via the telephone Ryan technology was not our friend we started talking about the layoffs and big tech came right for your Wi-Fi connection uh, Ryan but you were in the middle of such an interesting point before we said goodbye before we uh, we lost you you were talking about the way in which that perhaps the market did not respond to the pandemic in a way that we typically would have thought of during almost a global lockdown and a global uh putting to sleep of the economy yeah no kidding and sorry dave big brother was watching i bet <laughs> um but uh absolutely and you know when we think of what has happened in the last uh you know two years two and a half years we have gone through a number of cycles and so uh, you know, to, to sort of continue my, 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 my point, the market has not, has seen some, some shock. So we, we had that stimulus, so we had a shutdown, then we had a, this, this boost of stimulus money. And with this boost of stimulus money, everyone was sort of sheltered, locked down, they weren't doing anything. So supply was not available. There weren't people working, there weren't people building, you know, widgets. And we were all sitting at home demanding our widgets, and and with with that we uh, we then started to spend, and and as a as a global 
group of spenders we wanted to buy, but nobody was building. And then there came a point where that reopening happened. And when the reopening happened, they, they're, they're, the, 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 the workforce came back. But as the workforce was coming back, they got so comfortable receiving that extra stimulus money because the stimulus money was a little bit more than they were currently earning. They were demanding more. This put <laughs> extra pressure on the, 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 the employers and everything else. Let me fast forward a little bit. So last year, we actually, as a, as a, as a, in, in the market, we noticed that when demand started to slow, Supply started to catch up, and this overarching inflation number started to rise. The uh, central bank said, hey, let's start bumping up those interest rates so we can keep this under control. They didn't do it fast enough. Mm. We actually had a period of time last year where the, uh, both the uh, uh, growth or sort of the equity sector and the bond sector took negative double-digit returns at the same time. Mm, mm-hmm. Never happened before in history. So, I mean, with all of that said, um, we've, we've certainly had some interesting times. And so there's nothing predictable about today's market. Um, to, to quickly answer your question, because I know you had another great one, um, to quickly answer your question, with the looming talk of inflation, uh, sorry, of uh, recession, you know, the, the 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 economy folks in the economy are a little concerned because they're not sure you know are, are the inflation numbers going to stay up uh, are they going to keep bumping up interest rates and if so what's that going to do to my bottom line if uh, if we start keep seeing these job cuts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ryan along those lines uh, this one sort of comes from my own meandering personal experience but I did spend some time working in the financial industry and when I reflect on my time working in the industry I'll always remember a colleague telling me to remember that what matters most to a client is the security of their money. Like no matter what their like risk tolerance is, no matter what fancy strategy or idea might pitch, fundamentally nobody puts their money into the market with the intention of losing it. I took that responsibility really seriously and it comes with the pressure. And certainly it's something that I'm mindful of in my current job, but I have a little leeway uh, to wax poetic about, uh, about how I'm looking at economic data. But in your job where you're dealing with clients on the day to day, how much pressure do you feel to make sure that you're up to date on this and not just waxing poetic. Dave, you're, you're laying it on. You got it right on. I mean, that is the pressure we shoulder each and every day when we manage money. Every client, every single one, no matter what, whether they're coming and they've got a dollar to invest or $10 million to invest, it doesn't matter. Every single person who walks in the door wants to invest their money with no downside and all upside, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, we, you know, just put my money where it's going to earn money, and and uh, I don't want any losses. I mean, that's that's the you know quintessential dream. Now, when we go through a year like we've just had, and we're kind of still in it a little bit, but you know, but when we go through a year, we're all. When I say all, I mean all portfolios were down. And the balanced portfolio, which you would know well, is 60-40, 60 being equity, 40% being fixed, seeing a negative 10, so a negative negative double-digit return. Mm. Um, you know, how do you look at someone and say, hey, because uh, everyone calls you and says, hey, move my money into something where it's going to be safe, and there are no safe havens. So, again, when I, when I refer to the fact that we had a period where both equity and bond uh, uh, investments were down at the exact same time, there was no safe havens last year. So everyone, it, it doesn't matter who you are, we all walked out of 2022 in a negative, in a negative state. Mm. So what we're hoping for is as we look forward to 2023, we start to see that recovery and we start to rebuild that loss that we, we took last year. It is a heavy pressure. It is a burden that, uh, as a financial planner, um, you know, I, I accept. Um, and the most important thing, and, and, and I say this with all genuineness, is client contact, client touch point, 
and and interaction. Don't hide from the pressure. Face it on. Mm. You know what? The markets are what they are, and it's not. I didn't make this. You know, I didn't do what what's happening. <laughs> um, you know, but I can explain it. And and I say this, and I say this to all everyone, every, every one of my clients. I say to them, look, if it was the fund that lost the money, shame on me. But when it's the market that's do, that's dictating our returns, we have to understand it, we have to accept it, and we have to hold fast to our strategy. Um, because, you know, we picked the strategy because it was, you know, where we wanted to go, not necessarily making a buck quick. And, and that's the key. Strategies are long-term. It's about time in the market not timing the market. Yeah, yeah, that's well put, Ryan. Hey, Ryan, thank you for overcoming a little bit of uh, technological trouble for us this morning. It was great chatting with you. I look forward to doing this again in a couple weeks. Thanks so much, Dave. And I do apologize for the technical difficulties. Oh. I will chat with Big Brother and we'll get back on track. <laughs> yeah, we'll get right back on track. Ryan, thank you for this. Have a great day. That's Ryan Chin, a certified financial planner. He'll be joining the show once a month to talk about what's going on in the world of money. Coming up next, it's the Regional News Update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Don't forget in the second hour of the show, Sean Priest of Double Tap will drop by. We'll be talking about some new GPS navigation technology and the release of the newest edition of the Mac Mini. Want to get your hands on an Apple computer for a little bit uh, below the typical cost? That Mac Mini is the way to go. Let's get to the regional news update. The chief of the Blueberry River First Nation in northeastern British Columbia says a new agreement signed with the government signifies a new approach for government and business to work alongside First Nations. The agreement lays out timelines for upcoming land management plans and energy development agreements. Chief Judy Desjardins says the deal is historic. The main principle of our treaty was to ensure Blueberry was able to practice our way of life for as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the rivers flow, a new precedent has been set. From this day forward, our cultural and traditional values will come before anything else. Premier David Eby discussed the importance of reaching these agreements. Every time that we successfully work with a nation, to reach agreement on these very difficult and challenging issues, uh, we show that it can be done. And we also show the benefits, not just for the First Nations, but for the broader community, for the entire province, and certainly for the industry as well that depends on certainty on the land. The government has also agreed to provide $200 million for a new restoration fund with joint oversight between the nation and the government. Over to the prairies, a shipment of children's medication has arrived in Alberta. Don Kelly has the story. 
The province bought the liquid acetaminophen late last fall, as hospitals in Alberta and other parts of the country were struggling to deal with a spike in several respiratory illnesses. The United Conservative Party government says the shipment of 250,000 bottles will bolster supplies and make sure that children who are being treated in hospitals can get the pain and fever relief they need. Another 4.75 million bottles are on order. They have childproof caps and will be distributed to pharmacies. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. Over to Ontario. Ontario's Integrity Commissioner says he will investigate a complaint against Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark's decision to open the green belt to housing development. A complaint from incoming NDP leader Merritt Stiles asks the Commissioner to look into the timing of recent purchases of Greenbelt land by Ontario PC Party donors. Stiles asked the Integrity Commissioner to investigate whether Clark broke ethics rules around making a public policy decision to further someone's private interests. Obviously, um, the result of the government's change, uh, change of heart, their sudden decision change, uh, is going to benefit and make a lot of money for a very few, few people. Clark and Premier Doug Ford have denied tipping off developers ahead of the Greenbelt announcement. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia is making changes on how their emergency rooms operate. The changes include creating doctor-led triage teams that will focus on admitting patients more quickly and assigning extra physician assistants and nurse practitioners to emergency rooms. Health Minister Michelle Thompson explains that this is only the first step. Many of these actions are immediate and others will take a few weeks for recruitment. These actions are not exhaustive. We know that there is more to do. We know that we need to continue to make the necessary changes and investments to re required to fix our healthcare system. Other changes add a patient advocate to ERs to ensure the comfort of patients, as well as providing real-time data about the availability of beds across the health network. I want to remind you, this afternoon, Thursday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time on The Pulse on AMI-audio, Druida Gupta will be exploring a heavier subject with Sue Phillips. Sue is the Vice President of End of Life Doula Association of Canada. Together they explore why you should prepare for the dying process. That's The Pulse, Thursdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Then it's available on your favourite podcasting platform as well as on YouTube. I want to remind you that if you ever want to reach out to the show and share your feedback about something you like or you don't like on the show, we encourage you to do so. There's a lot of ways you can do that. You can send emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. If you put now with Dave Brown in the subject line, it'll get to us a smidge faster. It also lets people know, hey, you're talking about Dave's show. That's a good thing. You can also pick up the phone and give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. You'll leave a voicemail. You give us permission to play it on the air, and that's exactly what we'll do. You can also join the conversation on social media, several social media channels that AMI operates in. You can find us on Twitter or TikTok at Accessible Media. Twitter and TikTok, at Accessible Media. And then on the meta platforms, Facebook and Instagram, it's at Accessible Media Inc., at Accessible Media Inc. Coming up after the break, I've got a couple more news stories for you, and then Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat. Lots of fun coming your way on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Juita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.